Welcome to episode 66 of Probably Polly, the podcast where we question everything, even our name. As always, I am your host, Michael Haig. And I'm your co-host, Mandy Conant. Today's topic is how to build trust. That's going to be the the tagline, but it's a little bit more expansive than that, actually, because it's the same process for helping people recover from trauma as building trust is. Are we more specific to building trust off the bat or are we building trust as a recovery process? Well, that's the whole thing, right? The only reason people don't trust you is because they have trauma, either because they had trauma that isn't you or because you traumatized them. Mm, On the nose. Got it. Or a combination of the two, right? We're going to try something a little bit different. We're going to take a common set of experiences rather than a specific case study and we're going to do that. And in this one, the thing the person is working on building is specifically trust. But to build that trust, we're going to have to deal with some sort of trust violations that the other person has experienced or has experienced during the relationship in order to, to build back trust. Because that's really what it is. If you've ever met somebody who has like zero trauma, they tend to also just be super trusting because they're just not worried about mm-hmm. it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that. That the when you meet someone and they're like, I'm really secretive and I don't like to tell people about myself until later. There's a reason. You can just already know that they had a lot of really bad experiences with being open about themselves earlier at some other point in their life. Yeah. When I say trauma here, I don't mean major traumas necessarily. I mean, this extends to major traumas. But I don't think a lot of people realize that what I mean by trauma Everyone has some trauma. Yeah. Some type of betrayal or something that's broken your trust. Right. And so I didn't want to say how to help people recover from trauma, partly because we're a relationship show. So people are going to look at a title and say, and it'd be nice to help my partner recover from trauma, but also there's therapy for that. And that's not really my job. And what's the point? And the point is, because I'm sure if your partner has trauma, and I'm sure your partner has trauma, that you're going to want to build more trust than their trauma by default allows. Mm -hmm. And we're going to tell you how to do that. That sounds great. Are we going to touch on coming from the other way where we're the person that has the trauma and maybe has the trust issues and trying to not put that on our other, on our partner, on our new partner? Because I think that's important too, to not make, you know, your other partners pay or other people in your life in general pay for traumas that other people have caused. I don't really like the way that sounds. I have, I think, sort of lower key than maybe I should have been consistently in the show and in my work, push back a little bit on the hyper-individualistic approach to polyamory, the one that says everyone handles all of their own shit alone. I've always been sort of resistant to that. I've always talked about the studies that show that people start connecting in such a way that when they see the other person, their brain state changes. And for some things, it's easier to think of a couple Mm -hmm. as an individual or as a partner pair as an individual, um, or even groups of friends as a single unit in some contexts. And so I, I do think that there is a lot of this. I think to say not putting any on your partner is a lot like the emotional equivalent of screaming at people to pull themselves up from their bootstraps from poverty. Right. And that's why I said I don't I don't. Yeah, I don't like the way it sounds. At, when, I, when it came out of my mouth, I was like, oh, that's cringy. But it's really a common thing to hear people say, too, though. They say, like, you shouldn't put your baggage on me. It's not my fault. Your partners hurt you. And you're right. It's not your fault that their partners hurt them. But you're in this relationship now. But right, but you also had to consider what you know about them and their trauma when Mm -hmm. you decide whether or not you want to date them and whether or not you want to stay with them. You know, it's sort of like the equivalent of saying, I don't ever want to help somebody who needs help getting up a staircase because it's not my fault that they got injured before I met them. 
well, don't date that person, and that's just a terrible way to be a partner. Well, and I, I equate it to other actual, quote, baggage that you get in a relationship, like, oh, I don't know, a kid. Right, it's the same thing. Yeah. I don't want to have to deal with your kid if I date you. Right. Well, then don't date that parent. Don't date a parent. That kid came before me. That kid wasn't my consequence, you know? that Like, I didn't put that mm-hmm. on you. I don't want to deal with that. We always say date people as they are, not as right. you hope they'll be. That includes their trauma. Right. So then that's step one, right? So step one is when you learn that your partner has trauma, decide if you still want to be in this relationship. Right. Decide if it's still a relationship that you think overall serves your needs and benefits you and is worth being in. And if it is, then you need to not be mean to your partner about the fact that they have these issues. And if it's not, or you can't handle that, then you can, of course, you can tell them, you can say, I have my own trauma. I can't handle this particular issue that you have. I'm happy to date you if we can work around it and you can get your need for that help somewhere else. And just tell them outright. Because, you know, also if both of you are people, for example, who have a kid, you're not going to be able to offer childcare. What you're going to have to do is deal with your own childcare. And that's just going to be something that you talk to at the beginning as well. That's entirely fine. It may be that you're not going to be compatible if your obligations or your issues or your baggage outweighs your communal ability to handle it, then that's not the relationship for you. But that that's a different decision than saying, I want to date you, but you have to handle your own stuff and it's not my fault. And then also putting it on them ethically and saying, you're the one that got abused. You should fix it. No, I'm not here for that. Or anything that amounts to that. I know that that's not the language people use, but if what you're saying could be rephrased that way and basically means the same thing, that's a no. So how about then, instead of us coming from it from that angle, because we neither of us like that angle, because it's not valid. How about we come from the angle of how each partner can help? through that trauma both partners you know like both sides of it can help through that trauma or make that trauma less engaging and you know less terroristic i guess we are going to try and say if you're the person with trauma yeah if you're the person helping with trauma that's great okay and by the way we assume you both have trauma well yeah everybody does (laughs) (laughs) but in any given scenario there'll be the person who has the trauma and the person who's helping with Mm -hmm. the trauma we'll try and talk about both sides of that coin as we go forward. Okay, so our test scenario for this is there is a polyamorous couple, two people in a polyamorous relationship. We've used a lot of AB language in the past. We're going to try the whole names thing. And if we like it, we're just going to use the same names always. So we're using Jamie and Alex and they for both of them. So we're going to say their actual names a lot so that the disambiguation is easier. And Jamie and Alex do not represent actual people. They do not. They are fictitious names. We are not alluding to anyone. They're for basically issues where we get like 30 emails and kind of the same grouping of topics. And then we write up a scenario we think handles those as best as possible without actually pulling specific descriptions from those areas. And Jamie and Alex will have other partners throughout the year. You'll hear back from them. They'll will add to their polycules. We need a third already. <laughs> Let's unicorn hunt. No. Um, <laughs> We're going to do Aaron. How are you going to spell it? I'm not. Okay. I'm not going to spell it because it's on a podcast and that way it doesn't have a gender. Bingo. What's up? <laughs> <laughs> Aaron's not even they anymore. Aaron is it. <laughs> No, no, the name. I meant the oh. name isn't it, not the <laughs> person. Right. People are never it. They're always they. Sorry, the word is right. gender neutral, not the the person also, <laughs> but the person is theoretical. So, but they. 
Okay, our outline scenario goes, you have two people, Jamie and Alex. Jamie struggles with jealousy. Alex struggles with communication. Okay. He's being open with their communication. At some point in their relationship, there was a pressure point that happened, and Jamie exploded and got upset about the way Alex was interacting with Aaron. Alex, for whatever reason, decided to show them the messages on their phone to show that they weren't doing anything outside of their agreements. Okay, this is a terrible plan, by the way. Don't ever do that. <laughs> if your partner gets upset at you, don't show them your messages. That's <sighs> a problem already. Yeah. And then after that experience, not surprisingly, Alex shuts down and communicates even less, which triggers Jamie's jealousy to be even worse, as you would expect. And at some point, Jamie decides to go through Alex's phone without their consent this time, when they're not around, and then tells Alex that they went through the phone, and Alex explodes on them, and then gets even more shut down. I feel like some people are going to be like, oh, this was me, you just said it wasn't anybody. Yeah. But I've heard this scenario so many yeah. times. I've lived this scenario. My last partner, the monogamous one that was super jealous that I talked about, absolutely. Mm -hmm. They read my journals, they went through my phone. Without consent? Without consent, and then when they confront me about them. Oh. And be like, I can't believe this, or I can't believe that, or... And it's... so, of course, I got really shut down about talking to them, and, like, hid my stuff, and put passwords on all my phones. It's bizarre that this happens so often, but it does actually happen a lot. So I'm not calling you out. This is not just you. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've definitely had the, like, seen the phone sitting there, and been like, oh, I want to look in it so bad, and stop myself. But I don't, I've never... I've never picked a phone up and looked in it. Yeah. I get all weirded out when my nesting partner is sitting on the couch, like the way we have our couches sat, if he's sitting on the couch, like laid back on the couch, texting someone and where I'm sitting, I can see mm -hmm. like over his shoulder. I, there's definitely times where I'm like, oh, I can see your text messages. <laughs> <laughs> can we maybe switch positions or something so right. I can't see what's I'm going on? I'm not trying, but I can. Yeah. You're right. Like, you know, when you're playing cards, like, all right, I can see your cards. I don't, I don't want to see your cards. <laughs> I don't want to see the cards. I want to actually play the game straight, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it's not, it's not, it's that fair. It's, it's not fair. It, it, that's not my business. Right. So after this, Jamie wants to rebuild Alex's communication. Because now Alex is completely shut down. They're not communicating with Jamie. We're going to do a sort of a best case here. So Jamie realizes they did the wrong thing here. They should not have gone through Alex's phone, which, by the way, this is, you know, step one of any kind of recovery is realizing you made a mistake. <laughs> right. Admitting there's a problem. A lot of people don't realize they made a mistake. If your partner goes to your phone and cannot accept that that was a mistake, you should probably leave. Yeah. That is an abusive behavior. It is trust violation. It is controlling. And if they can't even acknowledge that it was a mistake... At minimum at the level that you didn't consent to it and it was a consent violation, you definitely need to get out. But realistically, they should understand that it's just a mistake writ large, that that was mm -hmm. a bad thing, that any psychiatrist that they went to would tell them it was a bad thing, that nobody is going to say it's okay except for popular culture. I know a lot of people in popular culture are very jealous and jealousy is common and acceptable in a lot of American culture. Mm -hmm. I mean... Every romantic comedy or romantic movie I've seen. I was going to say, every movie will tell you it's right, okay. Every, uh, at least one person <laughs> in the movie is crazy, yeah. over-the-top, controlling, will punch someone in the face and steal your stuff, jealous. And the other people are like, oh, it's sweet. They like me. It's, it's not, not. It's not. It's not romantic. It's objectification and it's terrifying. Yeah. But in our scenario, because this is about rebuilding trust from traumatic situations, 
Jamie actually realizes what they have done wrong and goes, oh no, I'm sorry, I made a mistake, I would like to fix this. But now Alex doesn't trust them, Alex won't talk to them, Alex is completely shut down, and Jamie goes, what do I do? So here's what you do. (laughs) Okay, so a couple of things are going on, we're going to try and link this into some things we've said before. We have talked before about how lying or hiding behaviors in general is a two-way street although often informed by past trauma. So if Alex was having trouble communicating before all this started with Jamie, Alex probably has experience with other people blowing up on them for telling them the truth. Now, this is one of those traumas that a lot of people have just from childhood. A lot of people's Mm -hmm. parents, if you told them, I did this wrong, yeah, right, they would explode on you. They would say, I can't believe you did... And so a lot of people learn that lying or hiding is a lot better than telling the truth. Yep. That's that whole like uh, asking for forgiveness is better than asking for permission. But it reminds me of the the line in A Christmas Story, which almost everyone's seen a thousand times, where when the teacher says your guilty conscience will be worse than owning up and the kid goes, teachers love to say stuff like that. We all know it's better not to get caught. Mm -hmm. So the first thing is that line is so brilliant because if you want someone to tell you the truth, the truth always must be the safer route for them. So you have to create a scenario where the truth is always the better route, where it actually is true that telling the truth is the better route than lying about it. And I would say not just telling the truth is the better route, but being open about things is the better route. Just take that one step further and make them feel comfortable about not just telling the truth, but being transparent, offering up stuff. Right. So to increase their transparency, to be open, you need to make it rewarding to do those things. It needs to be Mm -hmm. relationship and, I mean, honestly, dopamine rewarding Mm -hmm. and not scary for them to share with you or they're not going to share with you. And you're fighting the fact that currently they have, either from your own action or past experience or both, learned that it's scary to be open and honest and that people usually weaponize your honesty to control you or harm you or attack you. Right. In a sense, what you're doing is you're actually creating an interpersonal safer space with this person. So you're creating a culture between the two of you or with whatever group you're operating inside of that rewards openness and transparency and which supports people for who they are authentically rather than punishing mistakes. You have to sort of give up on this idea that there's a right way to behave and a wrong way to behave and that you want to punish the wrong way to behave. Mm -hmm. I added the point about being able to share and that support simply because I've been that person. That's something that I've struggled with personally is maybe oppressing a partner because they didn't feel supported when they shared or they didn't feel that safe space to be able to tell me things. Mm -hmm. And then I would wonder why aren't they being honest with me? Mm -hmm. Why, Mm -hmm. Why are you not telling me things that was why Mm -hmm. and I didn't realize I was doing it because I thought I was just giving feedback right and that's that's not at all how it was coming across and I had to check myself and so you may not realize you're doing it I use a lot of checking in I think the people that I hang out with might think that I check in almost ad nauseum although generally speaking they appreciate it or say like there's sort of this this sort of checking in ritual yeah hey I want to check in with you. Is the way that I'm responding to this problematic for you? Or do you understand that I mean it or intend it this, this or this way? And then they say, no, you're good. I know that you didn't mean it that way. I understand that you meant it the other way. But it's nice that you're concerned, but you don't need to be. And, you know, so even if you're sort of over the top with it. It's better than than being less. Right. At worst, it's just this short back and forth ritual. But also, I find it always gives you important feedback 
about how the other person hears things mm-hmm. that you may or may not know, that you think you know, but you don't know. When they paraphrase back to you what they heard, they will always be some change from what you said. Yeah. And that will tell you a lot about how they're really hearing you and how that's working for the two of you. So it's always worth the time. And it lets your partner know you give a shit. Yeah. Nobody's going to feel terrible that you no. care. I'm like, oh God, he's always checking in with me. Like <laughs> that, that doesn't. <laughs> and that, that is actually a thing that people do. I definitely have had people say, this is exhausting or this is over the top or but those are people who have a lot of trauma about sharing they've been taught not to share and so Ah. that kind of checking in is scary for them and it's not helpful and and there's a lot of I don't know what you call it. It's like toxic masculinity, but it's not necessarily limited to men, where our culture in general is anti-emotion. American culture, but also Western culture, and really has been since the Enlightenment, right? That at, During the Enlightenment, there was a lot of philosophy written that basically said, emotion is the enemy. Emotion makes you weak. Emotion is... <laughs> for stupid people emotion is bad emotion is anti-objectivity it's anti-science it's anti-progress it's anti-helpful and of course a huge amount of that was anti-feminism it was misogyny cloaked as enlightenment as a way to separate gender roles because you know right up until the enlightenment men wore just as flashy if not more flashy clothing and colors and had just as flashy if not more flashy romances like during the romantic period and Mm -hmm. high levels of emotional content and then suddenly after the enlightenment everybody's been taught don't talk be quiet be manly be john wayne (laughs) right right but that extends to other genders as well not just male and female but all the rest of the wonderful gender spectrum because men are the privileged gender Mm -hmm. and therefore everyone by default until they deconstruct that and learn not to and even still sometimes has a script in their brain that says be less emotional i i always hear people saying i'm sorry i'm being so emotional about this i mean i had that conversation yesterday where someone was on the verge of tears talking about a lifelong series of and i mean very legitimate like physical trauma and abuse and going i'm sorry i'm almost crying and i'm like nah cry right yeah this is when you cry apologize that you're not crying yet (laughs) yeah (laughs) you're reliving these traumas cry be a human being yeah i think i've said that to you on air i'm sorry i'm being so emotional about this i'm sorry i'm crying you have you absolutely have and i'm like do not be you're like shut up (laughs) (laughs) be a person Yeah. But yeah, we are. We're taught to control that and that there's nothing good that comes from that. And so I think that's what you really run into when you run into people who say, well, I don't want to do this check-in is that they're afraid that they're going to show emotion or get emotional or get upset and that you're going to read them as being too much or too much effort. Weak or vulnerable or yeah. Or not intellectually interesting or not objective or whatever negative connotation they've been brainwashed and scripted into believing exists for having emotions for being a people right and therefore it is labor because they have to put a bottle on everything while basically while lying to you not intentionally (sighs) because they think it's sort of a test very similar to the old don't text the person back after the first date for three days or you'll seem too excited which i think has been pretty deconstructed i think generally we're past all that yeah but it's still sort of a thing that you hear and it's still the kind of advice that teenagers get i'm sure i'm sure that when you're starting dating in middle school and high school people are like oh hold off and don't let them think you're desperate don't let them think you're into them i don't i don't know what the (laughs) just just lie to them out not just in general but really work at pretending you don't care 
Right. And so I think you have some of that. And so that is effortful. If I have to, if I think it's a game and that I have to respond to the game and that I have to respond the right way. So there's a lot of language about there's not really a right way to be. I'm not expecting you to be any way. If I say, are you okay with this? Are you not okay with this? I'm not expecting either. Just want to know an answer. Yeah. Obviously, I thought it was okay, which is why I said it, or I wasn't thinking enough when I said it. But now I want to make sure that it's okay because I'm not actually sure. And the fact that I'm not sure is part of me talking about it. So you shouldn't feel bad no matter what your answer is, because I, if I was sure, I wouldn't be asking. Right. So long story short, check in. Just always check in when you're not sure. And you can always check in with stuff like, is there anything that you can think of that I could do that would make you more comfortable with talking to me about yourself and sharing yourself with me and communicating more openly with me or whatever Yeah, be specific. Yeah, be very specific. And if they say, I don't know, you could also say, well, why don't you also think about it and get back to me? You don't have to tell me right now. Most people don't know enough about their own internal mental state to immediately respond with a, oh, well, if I knew Like they had it in queue, ready to go. Just in case you asked me, I had this ready. (laughs) And there are things that are really hard in Catch-22. Like, so we talked in this scenario, Jamie has a jealousy issue. So if Jamie has a jealousy issue and it's an unresolved jealousy issue and they're asking Alex to be more open, but when Alex honestly tells them what's going on, Jamie gets mad, Alex is going to shut down. Yep. So you have to do that self-work on your own trauma first because that jealousy issue is obviously an interior trauma that you're dealing with, your Mm -hmm. your own experiences. And again, that trauma can be cultural brainwashing. You could have been brainwashed by our culture to be jealousy. That's a form of trauma. You could be have been cheated on. The person that I often list as being the most jealous person I've ever dated had just gotten out of a relationship, I think six or seven months before where they walked in on their husband in bed with a neighbor. And so, you know, they didn't see that coming at all. They thought their husband was happy. They thought that they were in it. And then there's a lot of they had a lot of problematic beliefs as well. They were a person who was considered very conventionally attractive. And the person their husband was sleeping with was someone who was conventionally by your Eurocentric normative beauty standards would be considered unattractive and they couldn't reconcile that. Again, it's a problematic behavior for themselves. They just thought there's an objective beauty standard. I'm at the top. This person was at the bottom. But that was how they had previously thought themselves safe from cheating. They thought... I'm so hot, no one would ever cheat on me. And then to find out that people do cheat on you, but to not understand throws off your any sense that you have of Of person, yeah, of who you are. Right, uh, well, of who you are, but of also of of any sense of safety. You just have no idea how to build safety. So their whole safety net got torn out from underneath them. And it was a terrible safety net. It was problematic. (laughs) It was wrong. It was really awful. It was very fat phobic safety net. (laughs) But it was... It was, what, it was their safety net nonetheless. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was how they understood the world yeah. and they were shown in no unclear sense that they understood the world wrong. It wasn't that people were just trying to sleep with more attractive people, air quote, yeah. more attractive. They, they just had no idea. Why did this person want to sleep with someone else? Why? 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 And of course, I would say because monogamy is a problem. But yeah. at the time, they also believed that monogamy is the best. So they definitely <laughs> were not going with that as an answer to that question. And as I understand it. 10 years later, they were a lot less jealous that they had sort of worked through that because they'd rebuilt that safety net. They had been with people for multiple years who did not cheat on them. They had not repeated the cheating experience. I don't know how they now construe what makes them safe or not safe from cheating, but I assume that it's the answer is that they just feel that their current partner is safe. They've been with the same partner now for like a decade and then they just think that that person is safe as opposed to some sort of abstract sense of things that might make them safe. It definitely can't be the other one because the Eurocentric problematic beauty standard they were using does not apply to their age group anymore. <laughs> so <laughs> I was just saying, maybe, maybe the relationship is based on much more than that physical 
they know now that people date them for more reasons than just their ass or their, you know, yeah. The people date for connection and maybe they didn't, weren't, maybe they weren't connected to the partner before. Right. And what this person was giving them that they couldn't was feeling attractive or feeling yeah. exciting or feeling, yeah. So whatever reason, hopefully they now have a new sense of how that works. But the point yeah. is that they were completely lost and that's why they were jealous. And I definitely at that point had the opinion Right, so I'm going to say this and it's going to be problematic because this is me from 16 years ago. Right. In my head, I was thinking I shouldn't have to deal with this. Right. I shouldn't have to deal with you being crazy because of the person you were with before because I've done nothing wrong and therefore I shouldn't have to fix your issues. Either you fix your issues or I don't want to be with you. And a lot of that's okay. Which is something we're going to talk about. Yeah. Uh, you know, as we said, if I just don't want to deal with jealousy and I say, well, so you know, if you're very jealous, I'm going to leave. That's okay. Crazy is not okay. That's ableist language that we're definitely not endorsing and we're totally against. But at the time, that was not where my brain was at. And I also identified in that space. And so it was a weird sort of, doesn't matter. What matters is I wouldn't say that anymore. But what I should have realized was that this was a person who was experiencing extreme amounts of trauma and that we should have immediately started working on that if we were going to try and have a long-term relationship. Yeah. That I, We should have said, I, we both need to recognize, because I think they also didn't want to think that they'd been totally reshaped by that partner. They wanted to say, I left them, they did a bad thing, and I'm me, and I didn't get permanently harmed by them. Affected, yeah. Yeah, and really what we should have said was that was a severe, severe trauma. It changed your entire way you view your life, and we should start with what makes people safe in relationships what causes people to cheat mm -hmm. if you want we can go to couples therapy even relatively early on hey we just started dating we've only been going out a few months but we realize that there's a significant trauma issue here and i'd like to help them work through it if i can you know like yeah that you should look for those sorts of major things like i know that's like a people go to couples therapy when they've been married for years or when they you know when something happens to them as a couple there's nothing wrong with starting ther nope. cu couples therapy two or three months into a relationship because you know Know that trauma exists and you know you're going to have to work through it together yeah. you might as well get professional help for that right if, if you like the person enough that you want to date them while they're right. working through this massive trauma and you want to help them with it it's just going to be less work for both of yes. you to go to therapy like it's just going to be better the idea that again this is that i think it's an american still sort of puritanical work ethic and objective you shouldn't be overly emotional and you should own your own shit bs that's built into the don't go to yeah. therapy because the idea is if you have to go to therapy in the first two months you should just quit what we all need help no we all need help Yep. And also, if that's how you feel, the solution to that, by the way, is not just ignoring necessary therapy. It is actually quitting. So if you feel yeah. that if you would need therapy, you should quit, you should still authentically be evaluating if it needs therapy, not just hiding from it. Because that's the thing that happens a lot for people that don't believe in therapy or psychology generally. In the South, it's very common. You know, parents will take their kids to psychologists because my kid isn't quote unquote damaged, crazy, other problematic right. and wrong languages. But not only that, they do nothing else to solve the problem either because well because then they would have to admit that so they've done something right. wrong <laughs> yeah and, and, and right and so that's the problem yeah do a simple litmus test if we had been dating for three years and we were having right. this level of issue with jealousy would i say let's go to a therapist and if the yeah. answer is yes go to a therapist i don't care if you've been dating a month it just it, just go 
Just yeah, my I've, I've touched on this before, but my nesting partner and I went like started couples therapy and we hadn't been together quite a year yet. And and we started couples therapy because we both had some past trauma that we were trying to help each other work through, which was affecting how we were working with each other, of course, because sure. it's gonna. Um, <laughs> and the therapist, like after two sessions, looked at us and was like, well, maybe you guys just shouldn't be together. We were like, fuck you and walked out because... <laughs> We wanted, we, it was the mentality that you were talking about, where is if you've not been together a year yet and you're already having to go right. to therapy, like maybe this isn't, this isn't going to work. Yeah. But like, we're here to make it work. So how are you going to tell us that this is not probably going to work? And 11 years later, we're still together. So I don't think it's problematic for a therapist to suggest that you should seriously consider the option of breaking up, but to say like, maybe you just shouldn't be together is a bad phrasing. My response there would be one option that should always be on the table for everyone is constantly considering if this relationship is working for both of you. Right. And as long as it's still working for both of you in the way that you want it to work, I'm happy to help you try and make it even better, but definitely yeah. always keep that option on the table. Because if you say, Oh, no matter what we have to work through this, that gets really problematic really quickly. No. And that's, I, I, I feel like that we had explained that to the to the therapist that we really wanted we both wanted it to work. Mm-hmm. We just we knew we we knew the traumas that were there. We just needed help. You knew that you both had traumas, you knew you didn't have the tools to resolve them or to work them out together or even to discuss them together. Right. And you needed professional help to do that. Right. And for them to go just like, I don't you know, maybe this isn't gonna work. We were like, fuck you. Right. That's not what we came here for. We came here for you to help us because we wanna make this work. Like That's very strange. But very conventional as well. I'm sure that the thought was right. dating shouldn't be this hard. <laughs> so if it's already this hard all this early, but you guys had traumas and you knew you had them. I don't like to say this. I mean, I don't feel this way a lot of time, most of the time, but I felt like we were smarter than the therapist at this point. Like it's possible. <laughs> really? <laughs> because like you said, we, we identified these things. Yeah. We just needed help working through them. I don't need you to like hypnotize me and find my shit. I like, I got my shit. It's right here on the table. Can you help me sort it out? And yeah, so I, I want to go back and touch on mm-hmm. the being specific about asking how mm-hmm. go for it. asking for what your partner needs and how they need things. Wh- what would make it easier to talk and what would what can I do to help you be more open with me and help you be more sharing with me? The conversations that I would have with. Uh, my partner that I spoke about earlier where I was that time bomb. I was that bomb that every time they opened up to me or tried to talk to me, I would get angry or I wouldn't, I wasn't supportive. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in the middle of the discussions, I would go, you know, he would shut down, wouldn't talk. Then we would have an argument about uh, a month later and because he's shut down and wouldn't talk. And I go, you know, what do you want from me? What do you need me to do? And coming at somebody like that, not productive. Like, <laughs> specifically ask. That language definitely also sounds like the other person's being unreasonable. What do you want from yeah. me is the language of, I've done my best. How can you possibly want something else? Even if that's not what you mean, you need clarifiers at minimum right. if you're going to say that. And there there were definitely, like, I may have just said it much more aggressive than I did in the moment. Or it may have been that aggressive. Yeah. I would definitely go to them and be like, I don't, what, what, what can I do to make this easier but it was too big of a question. Does right. that make sense? Yeah, it often is. It was too big of a question for them to know what would make it easier. I had to, I, what I really needed to do was offer up, if I did this, would that help? If, you know, if, 
I gave you this, would this help? If, if we had this tool, would this help? And just me more offering as opposed to that big, you know, what can I do? What do you need from me? It's just too big of a question, I think. I heard two different strategies there. Because my original strategy that you that you jumped on was, I won't ask something like, what do you need from me? I would ask something specific like, what can I do to make you feel more safe opening up in conversations with me? Which is one strategy to sort of make the question as finite as possible. We know this is true yes. for motivation as well, how goals work, when they talk about like measurable, recognizable. So it has to be something they can conceptualize. How can we fix our relationship is just too big of a question. Too big. It's like asking, how do we clean the whole house today? But if you say something right. like, what would it take to mop the floor of the kitchen today? Then it's really easy to put together an action plan by comparison. And then once that's done, you can yes. say, well, how do we get the shelves clean? And so that's one tactic. But then exactly. the second tactic that you said, and this is also good, is a sort of brainstorming, would this help? Would this help? Would this help? And this is one of my favorite concepts. This is chaotic called chaotic resonance. So chaotic resonance is the idea that in some situations, negative outcomes aren't damaging, but positive outcomes outcomes work and therefore doing anything at random until you find what works is the best way to do it so <laughs> yes, uh, yes. my favorite version of this is back when key card locks were really new key card locks would read a serial code off of your key card with a magnetic strip and if it had one of the serial codes that was registered it would unlock and usually nothing happened if you put in the wrong code i mean if it's high security it might but usually nothing happened if you put in the wrong code because then if you misswiped the card they would call the cops and that's really problematic so the way that people would pick those locks is they would create a noise generator that generated every possible numerical combination at once and the computer would find one of them that was correct and open and then all the false negatives were irrelevant you still got through the lock you see <laughs> and I thought you were going with like when you mean like the key card locks, like like at a hotel yeah, or whatever, absolutely. right? Like the like hold it up to the yep. bing, like bing, and it goes. Exactly. I thought okay, you hold it up this way and it doesn't work, so you hold it a little lower, you hold it to the side, you flip it over, you see if that works. Right. And that, that <laughs> I also, thought you were going that, that way also with it. Works. <laughs> but here's what I meant: this if, if the person you know if the person's locked down and you're trying to unlock yeah. their doors, move your key card around. The move your key card metaphor doesn't really work as well because when a key card doesn't work for moving it, it means it didn't read it at all. Whereas in the lock picking metaphor, it's actually reading the wrong code, but it just doesn't have an adverse effect to the wrong code. Oh, okay. Because a lot of times you're going to be suggesting the wrong thing. You're you're going to say, hey, would it help you if I asked you more often if you're okay? And the person will go, okay. no, that sounds horribly emotionally overburdening to me. Please don't do that. Yeah, okay. That makes sense. But it doesn't hurt you to check in and ask about concepts. So you can say, okay, I would like to help you be more open in your communication with me. Are you in a place right now where you have the energy for me to throw out different suggestions that might help you mm -hmm. and they say yes and you say okay would it help you if i did my best not to have an emotional reaction in front of you but was allowed to leave the room to process if what you said was really upsetting to me and then they'll say yes or no that wouldn't work because if i see you leave the room i'll know you're upset and that would upset me too much you know you're upset yeah <laughs> well because some people are upset that you're upset and some people are upset that they have to deal with the fact that you're upset so ah. you're disambiguating now okay which of those is really the problem well and you're getting closer to, you know, to that cord. And if they say yes, then you found the new skill. And if they say no, yeah. nothing lost. But it might also give you more information about what to try next, which is also, I guess, the, the Thomas yeah. Edison, I found 275 ways not to make a light bulb, right? And then right. something's going to work eventually. I just need to find all the things that won't work. Yeah. This is chaotic resonance. It's when you try things at random because nothing's working. And this is basic human problem solving skill, even if you don't know it, actually in your brain, 
if you think of every possible solution to a problem and you can't think of any more and you keep trying to think, it actually has a section of your brain that's basically a random concept generator that will just start generating random gibberish as an answer until one of those things is helpful. <laughs> so this is how we solve really difficult hyper-creative problems as well. Um, it's how we have new thoughts. Right. Otherwise, we would never have new thoughts. We'd always do the same stuff every time if you could only do the things you'd thought of before. Mm -hmm. So the way that we have new thoughts is once we exhaust everything we know, we start doing stuff at random until something sticks. Yeah. I was just trying to say be specific. <laughs> no, you weren't, though, because you also said make suggestions. Be specific is not make suggestions. Specific suggestions too, though. If you're saying what you want to fix, be specific about what you're trying to fix, which was not a suggestion. It was a specificity in right. statement about your goal. Yeah. My goal is to have better communication, but more specifically is to make it easier for you to open up and talk to me, make yeah. you feel safe to open up and talk to me even more specifically. That's being specific. Going, will this one strategy help you? Isn't even necessarily being specific because the answer could just be wrong. Yeah. So that just might be something you don't know. So it's not just specificity. It's when you're making those suggestions, also, the more specific the suggestion, the better. So if I handled your telling me the truth better, would that make it easier? What does that look like? Doesn't work. Right. But if I handled you telling me the truth by leaving if yeah. it was upsetting or staying, if it's not, would that work for you? Much more specific, yeah. Is a very, very specific suggestion that then is very easy for them to go, yes, no, and maybe here's why, to help you get to the next question, which is like, okay, well... <sighs> Is there a way that I can ask questions that might upset me in a digital format so that I don't have to leave or stay right. and I can more easily modulate my emotions because I can't help what my face is going to look like. Right. But if you type it to me, I can type back, oh, that's okay, even if I'm mad, if that's healthy for you. Obviously right. don't. Other, are other ways of communicating going to help? Right. You can add levels of distance so that it's less emotionally impactful for you so that they can tell you things that they think yeah. will scare you, but in a context that will make you feel comfortable. Everything works different for different people. Some people feel like they have to have those important conversations in person or it's problematic, but some people can't do that because it's overwhelming emotionally and visually. Yeah. And like empathetically. When I felt like I was trying to help my partner communicate better, I wasn't. It wasn't helpful because the questions were too big and it was, I was then basically just turning around on them to fix their own yeah. problem and and I wasn't right. helping. I was just making it worse. And you're making them feel bad for having trauma. Right. I'm a broken, bad individual right. and I'm hurting my partner. So I should fix myself, which again, you, there's no emotional bootstraps here. Right. You're not going to be able to pull yourself up if you're hurt by yourself. Exactly. That was my, my ad is that it's, it's, I lost my partner over it. I wasn't being helpful. I was, I was flipping it around on them and I didn't even realize I was doing it in the guise that I was being helpful. So one thing that you really want to do is you want to avoid blame. And one of the ways to avoid blame is to read your partner's actions with charity. So charity is a concept for art historians and philosophers where you read the argument in the best possible light rather than the worst possible light. Okay. And that helps you a lot blame less. If your partner won't open up and talk to you, the reading that a lot of people have, especially in our, our example, that the jealous partner may have, that Jamie may have, is that they're not opening up because they're lying. They're hiding something. They're not telling me what's going on mm -hmm. with them. So they must be hiding something. The charitable reading is they're not opening up because they're scared and they haven't done anything wrong unless I have a reason to believe that they've done something wrong, right? So the best possible light. So you just go to assume that. Yeah, because why are you dating someone that you can't assume the best of? Right, or that you assume is cheating on you, just in general. Yeah. <laughs> And we, we had this one in, I think the episode with 
I think, was it Robin that was like, if you think your partner's cheating on you, you have to go to therapy. Yeah. Because either they are, so you need therapy, or... Or you have an issue. Of jealousy and paranoia, so you need to go to therapy. Yeah. That's going to be the same thing here. If you can't read it with that charity, go get professional help, or at least start working it out among yourselves if you can't afford the professional help. Or if it's just too hurtful, you maybe step back and de-escalate your relationship, or take a break from your relationship, or in you know the worst case, break up. But that's exactly where you need to go with that. I'm going to jump over to the partner that has the trauma now, mm-hmm. and then come back in a minute. Your number one goal as the partner that has the trauma is to not self-blame. That's your absolute number one goal. If you could only do one thing it's to avoid blaming yourself and to forgive yourself Mm -hmm. both of those two and the forgiveness is really just a technique to avoid self-blame it's almost impossible to not blame ourselves somewhat so forgiveness gets rid of the blaming that we can't get rid of by saying okay i did do something wrong but i forgive me so that i'm not living with that blame every day we've talked about this a bunch the number one thing for overcoming any negative habit is forgiveness you need to overcome procrastination you have to master self-forgiveness want to overcome your jealousy you have to master self-forgiveness want to overcome your fear of talking to someone else you have to master self-forgiveness because you aren't going to be able to connect with other people while you're thinking yourself a monster because you're not going to think you're worthy of it you're not going to think you're doing it well enough And you're going to want to hide and shut down and use protest gestures and distance yourself from what's happening around you. You're not going to be able to get there. It might feel sort of selfish to say that the number one thing you need to do is forgive yourself. But like you are you as you are. Your partner wants to be with you even knowing you as you are and is working through whether or not that works for both of you. You know, they're willing to be here with you until they're not. And if they're not, then that's fine, but they're gone and you're not hurting them anymore, if that's your concern. And in the meantime, not forgiving yourself pushes you further from being able to help them. By the way, you also might have to learn to forgive yourself for not being able to forgive yourself for some things. (laughs) Because... This can create a quick cycle where I say, you have to forgive yourself. And you go, I can't. I'm a horrible person who can't forgive myself. (laughs) If you hear yourself doing that, go ahead and say, well, it's at least okay that I can't forgive myself because those things were so bad, they don't deserve forgiveness, except for that they do. That's not really true. I'm joking. (laughs) (laughs) Everything deserves forgiveness and another chance if you are trying to be better. The only thing that doesn't deserve forgiveness, as we've said many times, is hiding from what you're doing that's harmful. You know, this is the same thing we say in the transformative justice processes. You know, the only thing that we're not really willing to forgive is people who just want to keep acting badly and not do the work to deal with the fact that they're being harmful. So if you think you're harming people, you need to forgive yourself for your past harm in order to actually stop harming people. And when you don't do that, that's where the real the real harm happens because your partner is going to be thinking, I can help them, they can get better, this can work out better for us. And it's not true if you can't forgive yourself. So I think that's the most important work that you can possibly do is, is to bring that to the table. Then after that, of course, charity on your part. If you can master charity, that's also a good one because if you're scared, they're going to harm you for being open, it's going to be very difficult for you to be open. That said, if they have a history of blowing up on you, don't be open. That's going to re-traumatize you. Yeah. So if they're still blowing up on you and they can't stop blowing up on you and you're trying to be more honest and to have more trust, again, go seek professional help. And if you can't seek professional help, honestly, if you have a misconnect where you both have trauma and your traumas expand the other person's trauma, and you can't afford help, you probably actually need yeah. to, to de-escalate out of that relationship as far down the chain as you need to go to avoid those explosions because right. 
Because <laughs> even being friends at that point might might right. be too much. Yeah. And it really just depends on which things are happening. Because if you have a, if yeah. they're friends, but they're still jealous, that's a problem. You know, you have to go all the way down to whatever, even if it completely dissolves the relationship where you're not triggering each other's traumas. Because if you can't get professional help, it is very, 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 very difficult for two people with traumas that aggravate each other's traumas to resolve that between themselves yeah with no one else's help if they're significant yeah so i've definitely had small issues where like i have a small problem behavior that i have and my partner has a small problem behavior that they have and they agitate each other but never so bad that it's crippling to us and never so bad that it increases the volatility of that bad behavior so that it's actually worse than it was before it's just sometimes we have this conflict because of these conflicting behaviors that we have and that's just relationships yeah but if i am jealous and my partner is super concerned that I'm going to blow up on them. And then they're just correct. And every time they share with me, I blow up. Yeah. And every time they don't share with me, I blow up. It's just going to make both of our lives crazy if we can't get somebody who is a professional third party to work with us on that. Yeah. So then the other thing I think that's really helpful from the position of being in the position of the person helping someone else that you can do as the person being helped with your trauma. And actually, this is for both parties is to practice gratitude. Oh, yeah. If you have the ability, and you could even set like a weekly gratitude session, or you could make it part of your ritual to do gratitude work at the end of a major conversation, or just build it into the conversation. But if you can say, I know that I haven't made a lot of progress on my jealousy, but I am very grateful that you're helping me work through it, that you can be here knowing that I have a problem and still loving me and helping me get better and knowing that I'm doing my best to get better and believing that I can get better. That really matters to me. Recognize your partner for those things. I think what people don't understand about gratitude is how powerful it is. There's a lot of hilarious studies. And you know, one of my degrees is in business, HR specifically, which is basically how to get people to do what you want them to do, which is actually kind of horribly capitalist and, and mercenary. But it does have some interesting human behavior statistics. One of them is that the most underutilized practice is positive reinforcement, gratitude, basically. Mm -hmm. That managers who just tell their employees, you did a good at this with specific task-specific, measurable-specific praise, not you're great, but you really helped last week when you shared that you as a child were lied to a lot by your parents. Mm -hmm. And that meant a lot to me that you allowed me to see that part of you, even though I know it hurts and scares you, that... In tests, people performed like 20 or 30% better with that kind of reinforcement than without it, even when other rewards were present, like cash rewards, prizes, other managerial techniques. So you think about how powerful that is with someone you don't even like, like your boss. Right. And imagine how powerful that is with your partners. Yeah. Like you just saying that, I went, God, not that I don't feel like my partners show gratitude, but for something like that, something so specific, if I shared something like that and they said, you know, thank you for like specifically for sharing that and, and why that was awesome. I'm like, you, do you have some time? Because I've got more. I would love to share with you all the things. <laughs> that also helps build that safer space. Yes, that when they yes. when they do finally open up and give you something and you not only don't attack them, but you welcome it. Yeah. That's that reward, right? That's that cookie. You reward that with gratitude. There's yeah. going to be a chance that they're going to want to tell you that stuff 
I want to share all the things. And again, try and be charitable. I know you're scared to share or you think they don't care. If they did not, they would not be spending this much time trying to pull it out of you. And I know just disbelief is a big part of this system. That when I work with people who have extreme traumas and I say, I feel really good about myself when you cry in front of me because I know it means you trust me. They'll say, I know that you're saying that. I know that you've said that. I know that it's true, but I cannot feel that it's true because I have been taught that if you cry in front of someone, you get hit. And I haven't taught that you just don't do it no matter what and that it's something that only failures do. And so I hear you, but I'm not there. And so you are going to run into that. You have to be okay with that. You Mm -hmm. have to be willing to be okay with that. But as the person, again, who is hearing those statements, really try and dig deep into your charity and believe them, but also realize that person wouldn't be in the room putting in 40, 50, 100, 1,000 hours of discourse into trying to help you feel safer if what excited them wasn't the idea that you feel safer. Yeah. Because that's the thing that I also run into a lot is that, again, guilt and self-forgiveness are so key to the person who has the trauma. The person that has the trauma usually thinks that they are less than or not good enough Mm -hmm. because of their trauma. And they feel like they're a burden on the other person because they're forcing them to deal with their trauma. Nobody wants to deal with this. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody wants to deal with this. Nobody wants to deal with me. This isn't a value. Right. But a lot of times the person is there because it actually makes them feel really good about themselves to be able to help you with your traumatic experience, with your trauma, with your healing process. And so being specific in your gratitude is way more meaningful than you will ever know because you think that they haven't done it. Yeah. Right. So you think that saying, I know you say that you don't mind if I cry and I can't believe that, but it still means a lot to me that you're trying to be there for me in that way and telling me that it's okay. That's still going to refill their fuel gauge, right? They're going to go, okay, I'm doing useful work. Yeah. When someone does useful work for you, it costs you nothing to tell them. And if I could teach people literally one practice, and there's so many studies on this, gratitude would be the practice. When you share gratitude with other people, it deepens connections. It refills their emotional gauge. Bizarrely, it refills your emotional gauge. And it makes the things that you got more valuable. So if someone did something that was emotionally meaningful for you, and then you tell them that it was emotionally meaningful for you and that you're grateful for it, studies have shown that you get more of a benefit from Mm -hmm. you actually are even more healed. You are more helped. You have more mood boost. You have more amphetamines in your system. You have more dopamine in your system than you would if you did not tell them how it made you happy. Yeah. I mean, like I know personally, like we said, everybody's got trauma and especially trauma about opening up and being candid with other people. If I'm having like a super emotional day and my partner asks what's wrong and and wants to hear me talk about it and wants to give me that space, a lot of times my first reaction is that they're just doing that because they have to. Sure. But So then to have that partner come back to me, whether it's immediately, whether it's Mm -hmm. the next day, whether it's a week later and go, you know, it really meant a lot to me when you shared X, Y, Z and that you that you felt comfortable sharing that with me and that meant a lot to me that I had that information now and that I can help you with that and like what you were you were paying attention mm-hmm. like you heard me when I said that and you valued what I said and like mm-hmm. I'm not saying that that happens all the time for me personally sure. but it absolutely yeah. has in the past because you feel like people just I know when you and I started to become close, you would ask like how my day was or how I was feeling or how I was coping with something. And I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. Because the gut reaction mm-hmm. is he's just 
doing that because he just has to ask because he's my friend. Like that's he has to ask. It's so enculturated as well. I'm at the grocery store and someone says, how are you doing today? They do not want to know want my life story of pain. They want to hear great. How's your day? They do not want a two hour discussion. That's what they want to hear. So, yeah, it's my gut reaction to say, fine, I'm fine. Everything's sure. fine. So it meant a lot to me when you would mm. ask and you would actually take it in and then like ask specifically like three days later, specifically follow up on something or, you know, specifically say, hey, that was awesome that you shared that with me. I appreciate that. Like what? <laughs> because a lot of times when I get emotional, I don't even remember everything I said because mm -hmm. it just comes out like a fucking tsunami. And I don't remember everything that I've come that, you know, that I've said. And you're like, oh, you know, not, and not just you, but. But people, you know, in my life that care about me and, and that I care about to come back and specifically say, oh, you know, that, that was awesome that you shared that with me. And, and how are you doing with that now? And it just it, it like you said, there's no there's no way to put into words how much that means to somebody. And it took it costs nothing. Absolutely. All right, it's just practice, really. Yeah. The, the one cost there sort of is and this is this is something that you have to incorporate into yourself and that I incorporate. If you're wondering why you don't do these things, if you're wondering why when I say this to you, you have a mental block and say, I can't tell people how helpful they've been to me. It is because our culture has taught you that gratitude is an obligation. That if someone did something good for you, you owe them an equal or better reciprocal response. That is bullshit. You cannot operate on a non-explicit emotional barter system. If someone does something for you and you did not negotiate a price, there is no price. It is free. Now, when you say that, do you mean like maybe I don't share because then I feel like I have to ask you how you're doing and listen to you? Any variance of reciprocity. Okay. I think people are scared of a couple of things. I think people are scared that someone will say, well, I just spent two hours listening to your problems, so now we need to have sex. Oh. I think people are scared that people will say, I just spent two hours listening to your problems, so now you have to spend two hours listening to my problems when they know that emotionally they don't have the energy to listen to another person's problems because they're sorting their own problems. I, I do that a lot because I, I just don't have the capacity sometimes for other people's stuff. If somebody asks, I'm, I'm fine. Like, because that's all right. I can deal with at the moment is my stuff. And I feel like if yep. I do tell you what's going on, then I do feel obligated to go, okay, so how is your life? And so one, you need to understand that it's not an obligation unless you agreed at the get go to do that reciprocal work. It's not, but I do know people do that. I do know that when people are, for example, needing to talk, sometimes they'll reach out to all their friends and say, how was your day? Yeah. And after their friend engages a little bit, they'll go, well, my day was shit. Yeah. And let me tell you about it. You should not be doing that, yeah. first of all. You should absolutely always be getting consent for emotional work. It's one of those culture sickness issues that our culture uses to isolate us and make us feel separate and alien and alone and undeserving of emotional labor or help when we're hurting. And it's just another emotional bootstraps trap. Mm -hmm. But if you can't get over that trap, if you cannot not feel that way or not respond to people. So if you talk and talk and talk and then they go, well, I want to talk about my thing now. And you can't say, I did not agree to that. <laughs> Front load it. Yeah. How was your day? I had a lot go on today. If you would like to talk about what went wrong in my day, I would be happy to talk about it. But you need to know. It's a lot. I don't have any emotional energy yeah. to give anything back to you. So if you're going to talk about my day, and it's a lot. You have to understand that you can tap out whenever you need to because you're out of energy, but I'm not going to be able to give anything back other than working on my own problem. And you have to be okay with that. The other person has to be okay with that. Right. If you're excited about the idea of helping me with my problem, I'm happy to talk to you about it. But if you're not, then I'm doing fine. 
Yeah. <laughs> then for your purposes, I'm doing great. Yeah. I wouldn't necessarily add the sarcastic ending unless you're a sarcastic <laughs> friend. All of my friends are sarcastic. I'm probably going to add that. But if they're not sarcastic, just right. stop at the before that part. But yeah, so you can front load that to remind people that there's not an obligation in things freely given. That the whole idea that you are automatically obligated to stuff by accepting gifts, that's a thing that villains do in fairy tales. Yeah. You don't want to be a fae, okay? We're not fairies. If we do something for you, you don't automatically owe us. That's not how humans work. Right. Human reciprocity works on altruism. It's what makes the system work. That's why gratitude's so important. When you take gratitude out of the system, it reinforces the idea that we're in a system of scarcity. And gratitude is fucking free. So we're not in a system of scarcity right. unless you attach obligation to your gratitude. Decoupling obligation from your gratitude. You can also do it on the flip side of that. You can say, hey, I want to tell you, you did something that really made my day the other day, and I'm sorry that it doesn't mean that I can do anything big for you in return. I just want you to know how you helped me yeah and then give them your gratitude also is an acceptable way to do that that is why people are scared of gratitude we have a culture that has taught us as we were kids that gratitude meant cost right so that when my parents would say things like we do so much for you won't do this one thing we asked mm -hmm. that's the same mechanism in play because if i was able to honestly say i don't care about anything that you do for me then i wouldn't owe them anything on that logic right right so their logic is i gave you all these things freely given and now you owe me right and i'm like but they were freely given i didn't ask you yeah i didn't ask you to do that and this is this is very parent specific but my line and i think that this concept works anywhere was i used to say i didn't ask to be born yep. you wanted to have kids you chose to have the obligation to do band practice and taking me to soccer and enrichment and giving me a good life you chose to have that obligation mm -hmm. i just exist and uh friendship is pretty similar to me like you asked me how my day was right you chose to engage that conversation i didn't write you and say hey i'm in pain can i talk to you and if i did i damn well said but i can't do anything for you right now right <laughs> you know like and so then yes you should gauge if your relationships with your friends are enriching to you mm -hmm. so if you have a friend and i've had friends that do this who always only ask to talk about their stuff after like a million attempts to try and talk about my stuff and uh, other times and they're never available yes i yeah. say we can't be friends i'm getting nothing from this i'm just being your therapist <laughs> And I don't want to be your therapist because you're not paying me. Right. I have an hourly rate for doing philosophy coaching. If you'd like to do that, I can that sign you great. up for that. <laughs> but then you're a client, not a friend. Yeah. So let's still can't be friends. <laughs> but if you do want to be friends, we can still do that. Yeah. But just stop using me as free therapy. Yeah. All right. So a couple of quick communication tools, and then I think we're going to be out of time. Yeah. <laughs> communication tools and maybe a re a quick bullet point recap. So paraphrasing, I talk about this a lot. I can't talk about it too much. Is such an amazing communication tool for discussing complex emotional topics. So the paraphrasing communication tool is to say, I want to say back to you what I think you just said to me. What I heard. No, I like to use language what I think you just said to me. Okay. Because the problem is that people tend to take it as you saying this is what you said and i feel like when you say what i heard there may be an, uh, an implied what i think you said versus what you actually said but they said what they meant to say language is not a perfect system language is a symbolic gesture okay so they 
gestured at the goal, but a lot of people think that language is a one-to-one system where if I say, I'm going to do X, then you hear the exact thing I said. Right. And that is not true. Right. When you say what I heard, they might take that as being what you said. So I want to say what I think I heard you say. Okay. Because I want that extra couching language, which is, I'm not sure this is what you said. Right. (laughs) But here's what I think I heard you say. Because it does come back less aggressive. Yeah. And I even tell people I'm using the paraphrasing communication tool, which is to say that I'm going to tell you what I think I heard you say to check my comprehension. Right. To make sure we are on the same page. And if what I say back doesn't sound like what you said, please tell me how you think it sounds differently so we can go back and forth on this. And so you use that tool and then oftentimes they'll end up then paraphrasing back to you and they'll say, I don't know if that's what I said, but you have to keep changing the way you're saying it to check comprehension. Mm -hmm. If you just literally repeat back what they said to you, it doesn't check for comprehension. You have to repackage it in your own words and then send it back and then they will attempt to correct and send it back and sometimes it will turn out that you always agreed about what each other was saying but you still do this seven times it's great before you realize still great that you were saying yeah. the same thing yes yeah. still, still great because now you <laughs> now you know that you were correct yeah and you know more about how the person processes things like it's it's yeah. all learning the other thing i would say is you need to be okay with however you learn and what you need for discussion so i have a steel trap memory for language so I can just have a discussion with my friends and remember all the things I learned about them, the end. And I can hold my questions and I can wait my turn while still listening. A lot of people can't do that. I would say most people can't do that. Yeah. Get a notepad. Write down your questions so that you can go back to actively listening. Maybe even tell your partner in the middle of something, can you wait a second? I just had a really important thought. I don't want to lose what you're thinking. So just hold that for one second. Write it down. Mm -hmm. Okay, continue. And take those notes and then go back to your notes and say, I heard this. I heard this. I heard this. And take notes for yourself to take home because a lot of times you'll do this wonderful work. You'll come up with all these coping strategies. You'll immediately forget all of them. You know, you can even send paraphrasing note emails. Here's what I think I got from the conversation we had. I heard you say, (laughs) this works for you. This works for you. This works for you. This doesn't work for you. This strategy would be good for you. Is that what you remember from the conversation? And they'll go, yes, no, or yes, and we also said this strategy, this strategy, yeah. and this strategy. Which happens in business all the time. I do that in yeah, work absolutely. all the time. I'll have a phone call with somebody. Okay, just to just to, to clarify, this is what we talked about. This is the plan moving forward. This is what we're not going to do. So like that happens mm-hmm. in, in business all the time. You don't want to make mistakes there. Yep. And your relationships are far more important than absolutely. a business transaction. Absolutely. Put the extra work in. And the other thing is humans learn best using as many different learning approaches as possible. So first you do it audially for those of you who are hearing and speaking people. Then you write the email follow-up to check in on it for those of us who are visual learners. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, for, the, for those of you who are visual learners, you know, and obviously if you can do a, a task-based test or a role-playing scenario test for the kinesthetic learners, that would be extra ideal, but that's a, that's a lot of extra work. But if you need it, do it. But, you know, if you have the time. Yeah. Let's imagine a difficult issue. Yep. Make up an issue that isn't even a trauma you actually have and pretend that you're sharing it with me and I'll pretend to use the tools and we'll see how that goes. And that will really help reinforce that learning in a zero stakes environment because the issue is fake. Yes. I love that. I love that. Right. So the short, short, short version is you have to make it 
more rewarding to heal than to continue engaging trauma responses because trauma responses are evolutionarily advantageous. Mm -hmm. They are coping mechanisms. They are adaptive. People don't have them for no reason. They were helpful when they developed them. They were helpful when we evolved them. And if you don't create a space where it's more helpful to be open and feel safe and to recover from their trauma, it's going to stay. Then they're not going to. Yep. Because it's like any other adaptive behavior. If you're in a room with smoke, you're going to drop to the floor to get fresh air. And you're not standing up if that room is still on fire. There's still smoke. There's still a reason to be down there. Yeah. You have to create a clear room with no smoke in it if you want them to grow. You cannot help people. You can only create space for them to grow into. Yes. And it's sort of the equivalent to you can take a horse to water, but you can't force them to drink. Mm -hmm. You can provide clear, healthy water. You can provide clean, open space, and then you can give them their time to move into it. That's all you can do. And so you're asking, when you're asking for those truths and you're asking for that trust, create that space. Create that space that welcomes it, that rewards it, and it will happen and it'll happen again and again. And don't ask for that space if you're not in a place to welcome it and reward it. Yes. If you're still dealing with your own mess and your own mess means you're not safe, don't represent yourself as a safe person when you're not. That will only make it worse. Because you're just going to re-fuck up that person. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It'll only make it worse. It'll only make it take longer and it will have them have specific to you trauma, which is, by the way, far harder to work through than generic trauma. Yep, now you've compounded. Yeah, that their previous partners exploded on them. That's going to be hard on you, I promise. But if they have the problem that you have exploded on them, that's way harder because all of your benefit Mm -hmm. of the doubt is gone. You're starting from the role of aggressor and trying to build back that trust from zero, which isn't to say that you can't. It's just a massively long road that you now have to engage on. So it's very helpful if you can realize that you're not up to that and you can go, you know what? I'm going to go to therapy first. And if I feel good about it, then I'm going to try and help you. Yep. Which this is a good point both for that and for the forgive yourself. The other really important note is just like on a plane, you have to save yourself before you can save other people. Yep. Put your own oxygen mask on first. Yeah. And I I tried to say that to someone the other day that had a lot of trauma and they said, oh, because otherwise you save the person next to you, but you die. And I was like, no, Mm -hmm. no, no. Otherwise, you die trying to save the person next to you and they die too. And you both die. Yeah. (laughs) Because you asphyxiated before you got the mask on them. Yep. You know, whereas if you put your mask on first, even if they're unconscious from air loss, if you then put the mask on them, they now have air and they're going to come back. If you pass Mm -hmm. out before you get the mask on them, you're both done. That's the whole, you got to help yourself before you can help other people. So self-care is the most altruistic thing that you can do because humans, I truly believe, who are healthy, who are happy, who are well-adjusted, who have their needs met, who are overflowing, desire to help others. That's what we do with our overflowing. When we get to the point that we are healthy and overflowing, we help all the people around us. The more self-care you do, the more interest you will have in helping others. That's just a fact. Mm -hmm. You cannot say, well, I'm hurt, but I'm suffering from extreme trauma and I can't process how jealous I am or how closed off I am or how unsafe I am, but I'm going to fix this other person or I'm going to help this other person. You're not. You're going to re-traumatize. You're going to... Right. It's just going to make it worse. Yeah. Create these rabbit holes that you both get stuck in. 
And I think that helps a lot with guilt because I think a lot of people who are hurt feel guilty taking care of themselves. And of course, in America, especially one of the number one ways we've been hurt is by being told you have to help everyone else. You have to give and give and give. The yeah. horrible giving tree metaphor, literally kill yourself to help them build a house, actually die for their happiness, support them while they grow, give them food to feed them, and then let them literally kill you and use your corpse as a house. No, that's insane. Partly because that helps less than staying as a tree to keep giving fruit and exercise to other people. You just help that one person and then now you're gone. So your total helpfulness is low, not high. Whereas if you help that person and they can help other people and you help other people and they can help other people and as a community they can work together to build a house out of mud or something, then they still have this great fruit tree. That's why people don't chop down orchards to build houses. That's crazy. Right. For me, I think that is one of the things you can help to remember to remind yourself when you're trying to forgive yourself is that you do have to take that time for yourself otherwise you can't help other people so if you really want to help other people last thing is it takes as long as it takes trauma recovery can take a week a month a year 10 years and honestly it's never a week or a month it is often a lifetime a lifetime it is yeah. usually years all progress real major progress is years like anyone that's ever gone on an exercise program and really succeeded in super transforming their body entirely into a different shape no it took yeah it didn't happen in three months two three four five yeah. ten years to really hone yeah it. and it's the same thing any kind of significant yeah. change to your body and your brain is part of your body make no mistake yeah. it takes months and years worth of good work and you have to celebrate small progress gratitude is one way to do that that's what i was gonna say is you you may see some progress you you may see changes but it's not done yet keep pushing even small changes are worth huge celebrations yeah that if you make even a step back oh yeah Oh, then yeah. you should feel good about and yourself and your work yeah. and your accomplishment and not think I'm not good enough. I'm not doing enough. Forgive yourself. Feel good about what you've done. Be grateful to other people for how they've helped you. Hold space for the people that you love, that you want to grow. Seek professional help often. <laughs> yep. See a therapist if you can. I think we should end every episode with that. <laughs> episode with see a therapist if you can yeah and a lot of therapists have a sliding scale or have a sliding scale pro bono work if you can't afford them just keep checking around till you find someone all right that's it i want to thank everybody for listening like and i know this is going to be at the end and most people are not even going to hear this but what you all hear is basically just a conversation between michael and i that we're just having as friends i definitely forget sometimes throughout the podcast that we're recording and that we're not just having a phone call and going back and forth and listening to each other's ideas and adding to each other's ideas know that when we tangent that's what that's what our phone calls sound like as well that's, that is true um, <laughs> Although Mandy and I have vastly different processes because I never forget that we're talking to people and I am always bringing my little like research sheet of the points that I want to make during the discussion and I'm trying to work to them. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm just always having a really good conversation with my good friend, Michael. So <laughs> thank you so much for listening to it. Well, and honestly, we probably could still hit all the points if I didn't do that, but I would have to do three times as much editing and that's too much editing. Right, right. It would be a much longer conversation. Even more. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, all right, y'all have a great night.